Hello, and thank you so much for tuning in to Stable Connections, the podcast. Today's episode is with Tina Stewart, and she talks to us about why she chose to become a veterinarian, even though she got rejected four times, how she got into doing medical illustrations, and what she's doing now. Hope you enjoy. Stable Connections is sponsored by Bay Mare Designs. Bay Mare Designs is a full-service branding and web design studio built for equestrian-owned businesses. Alicia combines her experiences within the design space and her passion for the horse world to create stunning, strategic designs that help you grow your small business. Learn more about how you can attract your dream clients through branding and web design. She services clients nationwide. Please visit www.bayamare.com baymaredesign.com and receive 10% off when you mention Stable Connections, the podcast. Stable Connections is sponsored by Hooked on Animals, owned and operated by Christina Steiner. Christina hand crochets unique animals and characters, as well as takes custom orders of your beloved pet. Visit www.hookedonanimalshop.com to see what she has available or to place your order. I think I just was born part horse. My parents tell me, you know, I could walk, but I would get down on my hands and knees and pretend I was a horse like a year and a half. And the first time I saw a horse on TV and it nickered and I started practicing. You know, nickering, and in LA they had the pony tracks at Griffith Park, and I started going there when I was like three, mm-hmm. and I got in trouble because I started kicking the ponies, and I made them jump from the walk lane to the trot. <laughs> when the trot lane, I'd kick them really hard when the guy would go to you know grab them, and so I've always been a real horse nut. Were either of your parents horsey? My grandfather, my mother's father, was Welsh. Eleven boys. Born in Kentucky, three of them ended up being farriers, one was a racehorse trainer. Her father loved horses. My mother loved horses and rode not the addict that I am. Who knows if there's a genetic thing to it or not. And and so partly that's why my mother was open to my being involved in horses and, you know, pony tracks. And then I think it was seven, I started riding Tally Ho Riding Club down where the LA Equestrian Center is now with Mac McDonald very British guy and I rode until I was like nine and a half and one night we had these little round robins with other riding clubs and this girl's horse broadsided the horse I was riding and his name was Red Fox he was my favorite and she sent him flying and I landed with my ankle turned backwards and broke my ankle and I had to cut the boot off and you know, went home and woke up the next morning and the stables had burned down and Red Fox was killed. All of a sudden, I didn't have a place to ride. And then, you know, Rocking Horse Stables moved to another place, but I'd save all my allowance to run a horse for a week for Easter. Mm-hmm. And I'd make little tassels with yarn and hang on the bridle so people would know it was privately owned. <laughs> you know, yes. It was my horse for a week. Uh-huh. But then I, you know, I got into middle school, junior high. My mom was doing her own thing. My dad was doing his own thing. You know, it was really hard to get to the stable. And you know, I was hanging out with different kids. Well, all the kids were into pot and taking uppers and downers and 
you know, my mom started to get a little worried about the people I was hanging out with, and I, I was miserable. You know, I just wanted, wanted to be with horses. Mm -hmm. So we finally broke down and got Pixie, 13-year-old, standard-bred Arab cross, supposedly. Giant Roman nose. Yeah, she had an avicular. She was lame, but very safe for me at that time. But yeah. How old were you then? I think I was 12. And I got in trouble because I kept adding bedding to my stall. <laughs> you know, got kicked out of that barn. And then we ended up in a very nice barn. But, uh, you know, it was like six months and... I'm watching these other people ride and jump, and poor Pixie could hardly do anything, right? So we finally got a thoroughbred off the track. Lovely mover. Knowing what I know now, he had ulcers, he had a big jumper bump, he desperately needed chiropractic work and body work. I don't know. So yeah, you don't know what you don't go. know at that time. You don't know what you don't know. Yeah. Were you having structured lessons with a specific trainer? No, until I got the thoroughbred and I started riding with Klaus Alban, who okay. had been in the German cavalry and he said, you know, when they started eating horses, he had to leave. Aye, in World yeah. War II, right? But he was six foot four. Uh, he ended up in, in Seattle, ultimately, but he trained in LA for a while and tied my braid to my boot, I mean, to my belt to make me hold my head up. Oh no! Uh, but, you know, it was my first introduction to dressage. Yeah. When I was 13 and, you know, getting the horse around and on the bit and leg yields. And, I mean, it was really rudimentary stuff, you know, but we called it dressage. You know, my mother was very, had her ego wrapped around, you know, my daughter does dressage. She, mm. Neither of us really knew what that was, but it was the beginning. Right? Yeah. And I also did jumping. You know, I did that for like two years with Klaus. And then I think I was about 15 and he moved to Seattle, things fell apart at the barn he was out, it was out in Canoga Park kind of area up in the foothills. And I stayed at that stable for a little bit but no lessons or anything and then moved the horse back closer to where we lived in LA. But I kind of did my own thing, I didn't take lessons, you know, I read, I got a Louis Podeisky's book, The Complete Training of Horse and Rider. and. You know, read it eight times and underlined things and tried things. And then when I was about think, 18, my mother had had this Arab Mustang cross and I had brought her to the neighbor's bulldog quarter horse. We got a really cute Palomino, very small. But I became friends with Trip Harding, who was in the area and he used to be a judge, really darling guy. And, and so I started taking lessons with him and it was my first learning really kind of what a half-halt might feel like, you know, and I just be still with your hands and close your leg and let the horse connect with the bridle and then use a little more leg and have him submit to the bridle and then maybe follow the horse forward so they go down and around. Like, huh. And she had like a pony trot and I felt all of a sudden kind of a body trot went, oh, you know, so that light bulb went on with that. And then you know, I, I struggled with, did I want to be a veterinarian or did I want to train horses? You know, because I love horses so much. And there was no other path, just those two. That was it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I had worked with uh, trainer Mason Phelps, who worked with Jimmy Williams and Mousy Williams, and I had groomed for him and stuff. And I, it was through Mason that I'd ridden with George Morris. And, you know, I kind of thought maybe I did want to train. He thought I was super talented because I actually knew flat work, like I could lengthen and shorten the stride on a horse between the jumps and 
So I had a little extra kudos from him and I really struggled and then I got thinking more and more that I could probably do more for horses as a veterinarian and affect their soundness and their quality of life and all that and then, you know, train for myself maybe. So I just, I'm going to be a vet. Went to junior college and then I went to San Diego State because my mother was worried about me going away. We had cousins in San Diego. Ah. So I could stay with the cousins, which was very weird. And that lasted like six months. <laughs> real glad to see me leave. I remember my aunt talking to my mother saying, it's really odd. She never comes out of that. All she does is study. Like, well, I'm kind of supposed to study. I have yeah. to get like straight A's pretty much. Yeah, and there's a lot of school for vet school too. Yeah, I mean, you know, at that point, friggin you know James Harriet books come out everybody in the world want to be veterinarians right so the number of applicants went from like you know 250 to 300 people for a class to like 1800 oh my god so then when I started applying to vet school it went from something that was somewhat subjective because they had interviews to objective was grades and your GRE score and work experience counted for almost nothing and I had a freakish amount of work experience. I'd worked in a small animal clinic, worked with an equine vet. So anyway, I got rejected four times. You did? Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. I, you know, they took 122 people. I was number 128, 132, 131. Mm. The, and the other piece of it was they quit interviewing during all, you know, because they had so many applications to go through. I yeah. get it. They had to make it easy to get through. We made it objective. It's just numbers. And you didn't want to apply anywhere else? Well, I couldn't afford anywhere else because you know, I was state. in state tuition. But I got accepted. And I can't even remember the name. It was back east. And it was a private veterinary school. It was, you know, then it was, I don't know, 20000 a year. Or Which is still a lot of money. Some astounding amount of money. So I, I just knew if they could just talk to me. Yeah. You know. I can wow them. Yeah. They would know. I'm going to be a great vet, you know. You're probably not alone in that feeling, though, too, with people. So, you know, I finally, the fifth year, uh, what I had started doing, I got my master's in nutrition. Because mm. I thought, well, maybe I'll teach or something, you know, if I'm not going to get into vet school. And while I was doing that, I was working for a veterinarian at the vet school. I worked for him for like eight years at that point or six years on a salmonella project in cattle and he had me illustrate for one of his papers and he liked the drawing so much he's showing him to the other so I started doing kind of illustrations for other veterinarians and then the bot botany department biology I started doing medical illustrations for a publication for them you know orchids and mm. life cycle of some plant but, huh, I kind of like this. Maybe I'll just do medical illustration because, you know, my mother was an artist and, you know, I had some clue, although what I did was completely different from what she did. But I have a creative side and I kind of fed that. And then the fifth year, they started interviewing and I got interviewed and I got in. Mm, they met you and then it was in from there. Well, I kind of knew everybody at that point. <laughs> you know, I knew yeah. Davis so long. But... I didn't have a 4.0 when I was applying because I had worked my way through school and, you know, it was like a 3.78 or something. Almost there. Yeah. And then I was a Regent Scholar the first year and got my tuition and everything paid for me. It wasn't that I was stupid, but it's hard to get straight A's when you work. And, you know, the people that I was competing against were taking nine units a semester and I'm taking 17. And, you know, 
Yeah, it's hard. Did you ever, in those years of getting rejected, did you ever think of doing something that wasn't horse-related? The medical illustration was kind of it. That just happened so organically and it was easy for me and I could, what it allowed me to do was ride in the morning like when it was really hot yeah. and I could do my drawing in the afternoon and you know so I could run my own schedule and that was pretty sweet. Yeah. And I, I mean I was kind of close to saying screw you I don't want to be a vet you know. What do you think it was that got you to not do that? I think it's some little bit of ego, you know, like, I want to be a vet, right? Yeah. I should be a vet. And I really wanted to know what vets knew. And so, yeah, I did it. And that's where I met my husband. Mm -hmm. He was a farrier before he got into vet school. So, you know, I have the riding end, he's got the foot end. Well, and if you had gotten accepted previously, you wouldn't have met him. Probably not. Yeah. So it's interesting how the, the universe works. What it is, right? Yep, the universe is like, no, 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 right. not yet. You need to wait five years. Exactly. <laughs> and I'm like, damn it! Yeah. No, I don't want to wait. Oh, but, yeah, that would yeah. be so daunting. Five different times. Yeah. But you kept going. Yeah, kept going. Yeah. Did you ever think you were going to stay in San Diego? No. In fact, I finished my undergrad degree in Davis. Okay. So that's what I went up. Oh, so you I, only I were in San Diego. Yeah. I only stayed there a year. And then, did you think you were going to stay in the Bay? Was that the plan? Well, I would have, except I couldn't afford anything anywhere. So in the meantime, I'd acquired the Sonoverian gelding that was utterly neurotic and a total mess. He'd been through the Verdon auction and really crank and spanking. And again, knowing what I know now, there's no doubt this horse had ulcers. But he was very old, massive. He was like almost 1,600 pounds, 16.3 hands, tons of suspension, and just willful and tough. Some of it was pain, some was, you know, certainly bad experience, right? I met him because I was asked to start working him to help the guy get the horse sold. And yeah, he had so much suspension. Two people came to try him. I, you know, kind of got him civilized. And at that point, I was in Davis. I rode with Herman Koopman, who was this Dutch guy from Woodside area. And then I worked with John Lasseter from England, came in clinic periodically. And then Gwen Stockerman. They helped me kind of get this horse sorted. We put him up for sale, and different people came and tried him. And two people ended up with compression fractures of the spine. Oh, no. <laughs> trying to do a canter trot transition, because he'd canter, and then like, boom, yeah. smack your back. I mean, talk about not through. He was not through the I neck. Mean, had a teapot neck. I mean, he's just a really difficult horse, but I loved him, Mikey. <laughs> so we couldn't get him sold, couldn't get him sold. Turned out the guy that actually owned the horse back east and bezeled a bunch of money and left for Mexico. And so this guy that I was riding for stuck with the horse and nobody would buy him. And I'm like, well, I'll take him with me. I said, but I don't have any money. You know, I'm trying to start a vet practice. And he's like, well, I, I have to get something for him. And I said, well, I'll start your 200 variant fillies and charge you X number of dollars and then you can put that money away for him if he ever comes back from Mexico and you can pay him for the horse or whatever. So he became my first Grand Prix horse. And then when I was in the Bay Area, I, one of my clients had a thoroughbred stallion that was the laziest, stingiest thoroughbred I've ever met in my life. Yeah, you don't, don't hear lazy anymore. with thoroughbred very often. 
don't equate with that. But <laughs> I, I have since learned that a lot of stallions can just be lazy. Mm. You know, kind of a boy thing. Like they just want to hang out in the pub and have a brew, hang out with the guys. But I started messing around with him and I got him. He was trained to Grand Prix, but ultimately, but I, you know, I didn't get to finish showing him because in the meantime, after four miscarriages, the fifth time I got pregnant, kept it, and I kind of put the kibosh on the horse scene. I was going to ask how you had time to, you finished school, then you were trying to start a vet practice, you had a husband to give attention to, and horses, like, how do you have time for yourself or anything else? (laughs) I mean, for myself was the riding, that's my meditation, you know, my time in the barn is I'm just finally, in my old age, built a little covered arena, a really nice barn. It's my sanctuary. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's where my, my sweet spot is. But once I had a kid, riding was pretty much over. There wasn't time. You know, and after a couple of miscarriages, we're like, okay, this isn't going to happen. I'm going to go ahead and I have this thoroughbred stallion. I got him approved Dutch and Tricaner, the only thoroughbred in the United States ever approved by both European registries. So it was pretty cool. And the breeding thing, and you know, it was just a mess, and it didn't work out. And but we had, you know, these baby horses, and my fantasy was I'd get them going, and you know, work from home and train them and sell them, and it never happened. It was just with the breeding and the training and selling. Was it just? It just wasn't working. Like what wasn't working? You know, it was this weird spot of I. I didn't really have enough time to be consistent with the young horses because I did have to work. We had no family support, and we really didn't want to just pass our daughter off to daycare or something. So we really tried to make it. I mean, I had a babysitter, young lady, that also helped me with the horses. Mm-hmm, but not uh, like a nanny. Not a nanny. Different, yeah. And we never made enough money for a nanny, so. <laughs> I, You know, it's just nothing quite fell into place. So I just had to kind of give up on the horse scene and for a little bit. Yeah, and so how long did that last? Did you just have the one child? A year ago. A year ago? (laughs) I got this, well, two years ago I met this lovely thoroughbred mare. I just walked in her stall, was to do some chiropractic work on her, and I'm like, huh, struck me in the same way that Mikey the Hanoverian did. You know, you meet a horse and you look him in the eye and you're like, Huh, yeah. You're supposed to be in my life. We need to connect here. Yeah. So it took me about a year and a half, but I ended up with her. With your hiatus with horses, you were still doing the vet stuff, just no horses of your own. I was doing chiropractic work. Okay. I I was teaching. Okay. So when did you start teaching? When I was 17. I had like 18 or 20 students in Davis and taught basic dressage and, and jumping. You know, I mean, I know enough about jumping to be... You know, someone useful, and actually Gina Miles, who was in the Solo Olympics, right, got the silver, was one of my students. But yeah, I've always been teaching, and then I thought when I got out of that school, I, I was kind of burned out with teaching. I'm not going to teach anymore. And it's interesting, as soon as you put on the shad belly and you're showing FEI, everybody thinks you know how to teach. Well, that really doesn't relate at all. And with the Hanoverian, with Mikey, Anders Lindgren, I rode with him as much as I could for about 11 years. So like from 86 to about 95, I rode with him a lot. Every clinic I could get. And cool. he was a life changer for me. The Hanoverian, you talk about horses that are one-sided. He was so hollow to the right that if I didn't have the left rein, the weight of the rein was enough to make him like turn right. 
And to turn left, it took two hands pulling on the left rein to make oh it turn left. You know, I did get chiropractic work done on him and, you know, just dressage. Anders would say, you don't need chiropractic, you need dressage. <laughs> you know, I'm like, well, chiropractic is a lot quicker. <laughs> right? It's so a quicker fix. We need both. So he was really influential. He didn't like the thoroughbred stallion so much. I mean, he was helpful, but the one that changed my universe with that horse was Charles de Confi. And I rode with him as much as I could every clinic for like 11 years. So I feel like I was really fortunate to get pretty deep indoctrination in each of their approaches. And in the meantime, you know, even though I said I wouldn't teach, as soon as I started showing FEI, People were asking me to teach, and I, I, you know, I was a decent teacher, so I started clinicking a little bit. And then when it became evident that my daughter was going to be pretty time-consuming and I wasn't going to be riding, and, you know, in my old age, my wrists and elbows and shoulders are kind of trash from cracking horses for years, so the teaching has gotten a little more and the chiropractic a little less. So why did you go from doing the, the did you have a full vet, vet practice and then yeah. kind of switch to just chiropractic? Because of the first recession I went through in 1990-91 down here in the Bay Area, um, we lost $38,000 in gross receipts. Like we went from making a chunk of change every month and our rent, because I was running a house with some land, was $2,500 a month then. <laughs> And our gross receipts went from, you know, eight to 11,000 a month to like 2,500 a month. Like people quit paying. And when I'm going through the folks that didn't pay, a majority of the work was emergency work. And I thought, okay, I'm just not doing that anymore. Yeah, that's so, not fair. And I was starting to build up enough of a chiropractic clientele. I worked with a woman that came to the Bay Area regularly and she had to work under a veterinary license. So she's in Kentucky now, Shirley McClellan, and she's brilliant. You know, she worked through my practice for like three years. And so she taught me some basic stuff and I tortured my own horses and got better and better at it. And I started building that up and quit, I quit doing pretty much any emergency work except for really good clients. From there, you know, we were hoping to buy land because now I have the thoroughbred stallion and, you know, people want to give you mares, right, that aren't rideable. And that was before I really thought about, well, if you can't ride them, do we want to breed them? You know, but I mean, I made a lot of stupid mistakes. Everybody has. Yeah. So we even looked around here and kind of north of, you know, the Petaluma area. We couldn't afford anything here. So we bought a chunk of land north between Red Bluff and Redding. Because I thought, well, I can suck it up and suffer in the heat in the summer. No. After two <laughs> years there, we're just like, now we got to get out of here. And that's when the thoroughbred was approved Dutch in 94, I think. The meeting was up in Seattle. My husband and I drove up to Seattle and we drove through Eugene and we're like, huh, green, rolling hills, trees. Yeah, this is where I want to be. Yeah, Eugene so, is a really nice place right. to be. So we, it took us a few years to get out of Cottonwood, but yeah, we moved north and we're still there. We have 31 acres. And, Beautiful. How long yeah. have you been there now? 25 years this summer. Wow. And so do you still do chiropractic? Yeah, I have a few. It's interesting. The dressage people don't use me much. I don't know why. Um, so I've got a few hundred jumper barns that I've done for 25 to 30 years. And 
I still do them. You know, and when I get old and start drooling and forgetful, and they That's fire when me. stop. <laughs> but I'll probably be doing them a little while longer, yeah. And why did you choose chiropractic over acupuncture or anything else? It fell into my lap because this woman that needed to work with a vet, I mean, because I didn't believe in it at first, you know, and one of my clients used her and she, she begged me to let her travel with me. And basically I, I'd take one day every, I think she came every three weeks or something. And I'd take a day off and drove around. So I said, I'll, I'll give it a whirl. Cause she worked first, you know, did chiropractic work on some of my clients' horses. And I thought, okay, you know, these are knowledgeable people and good horsemen and I trust their words. So maybe this is really something unique. And her technique is completely and utterly different, you know, than most other chiropractors. She doesn't do it from the top. She did it from the side and from behind. It's all about getting the horse to lift lumbosacral. It's really a technique designed for horse pelvises. And if you get the pelvis in good alignment, the ribs tend to fall right into place because then the spinous ligaments support the back correctly and the, the ribs are lifted and they just... It's like a domino falls right in. Makes sense to so me. So it's kind of cranial sacral therapy, right? I do the usually just the pelvis and the pole and the neck and almost never touch the ribs. Does your so when you started your vet practice, did you and your husband do it together? Yeah. Okay. And then I started still- it on my own because he was actually working up in Ukiah for another veterinarian and he graduated a year before me. But then once I started my own thing, because there was no work when I graduated, it was, there just wasn't much of anything unless I wanted to go to Oklahoma or Texas. And I didn't. Dr. Wheat, Don Wheat, who was head of surgery at equine surgery, well, orthopedics in UC Davis, called Bill Nissen in Walnut Creek, because he asked me what I was doing. I said, I'm not really sure, you know, because I can't, I'm not finding work and I really didn't want to do small animal. I can't stand being locked up inside and barking and I can't stand it. It makes me psycho. So he called Bill Nissen and built such a character, but he didn't want to give me a job, but he said, you know, because he was gone to hunter jumper shows all the time with his wife. So he said, you can cover for me. And when I come back, like in the winter, I want to be able to vaccinate my people's horses. I want my clients back. If they really want to stay with you, that's okay. But I don't want you hustling my clients. And I said, I'm sure there's plenty of work, you know, so that'll at least give me a little income and work, you know, and start making connections. And, and help and his did, program continue too. Yeah, yeah like, and it worked well. And I, you know, and then when people realized I was a dressage rider and a veterinarian, you know, that worked for me so um, I slowly built things up there and then my husband and I decided well at that point we weren't married and I was like okay we've been together seven years let's make a decision here I'm kind of tired <laughs> of pretending so we got married and he joined my practice yeah so when did you start clinicking I think 94 is the first time I did a relief kind of a formal dressage clinic in Oregon you know where whatever barn I was at I would do some teaching but that was my probably my first really formal clinic where someone brought me in and then it just sort of built up from there do you remember your feeling that first clinic it was fun it was fun were you nervous no not at all i mean because i've been teaching i taught tatum o'neill for international velvet in la when i think i was 17 or 18 and maybe i can't remember but you know I mean, I was teaching, I started teaching when I was 15. Mm. So, no, I wasn't nervous at all. And do you feel like you are a better writer or teacher? 
Well, having not hardly written in 20 years, I used to think I was a better writer than a teacher, and now I'm a much more practiced teacher. But now that I'm writing again the Thurber Mare, she raced for three years, she's either behind the bit and chomping or dragging my armpits to her ears. <laughs> so we're kind of learning about contact and bending and... But I was like, well, I can still sit the trot and I still have a good seat in the canter. And so I'm probably, I think, close. And I think I'm fairly good at both. And I'm old and I'm not phenomenal. I'm not going to have any mirrors in the arena. I don't want to see what I look like. <laughs> <laughs> it's fair to have a dressage. <laughs> dressage person not want mirrors. All right. What do you think it was about your training tactic that people come to you? I mean, I have been involved in the training of over 200 horses at the FEI level, right? So I'm reasonably knowledgeable, and I, a lot of my students are very successful. My most successful student is Olivia Lagoy-Waltz, who was kind of, I mean, if the 2020 Olympics had happened, she would have gone. She's probably my biggest claim to fame, and we're still really close, and she flies me back east. A little bit of virtual teaching and stuff. So I think that, and I, I think what's unique is I'm a veterinarian, right? So I can't help looking at a horse and wondering about why are they short here? They look a little unlevel there. Soundness in general, and yeah. Soundness in general, and then, and I even wrote a little article for dressage today a while ago, basically therapeutic dressage, that dressage can done well and made fair for the horse. You know, like you got a little bit push, but also give a lot of breaks. I give a lot of rewards. I, I like to pat them a lot. I give sugar cubes or whatever. Because why would a horse want to do dressage? Freaking miserable, right? You know, but they are, like Andre says, stupid, lazy, grass-eating mammals, you know, and they, they're herd animals, so they are happier when they know the rules. And so I think I'm good at showing the rules and making it fair and making progress. So I, it's a combo of, you know, I have some FEI experience, I am a veterinarian, and even chiropractically, when I see a horse super level behind, or a big jumper bump, or there's twisting, I can feel the pole, and I'm fine if someone doesn't want to use me for the chiropractic, but I can at least bring it to their attention, and they can, you know, something they can resolve. So I'm kind of freakishly unique that way, the, the chiropractic, the veterinary, and international FEI level experience. Yeah, I do feel like that's very unique. What do you feel has been kind of like with building what you have, whether it's, you know, vet, chiropractic, training, any of that, that was like the hardest thing? You know, I mean, I've been so lucky that other than getting into vet school, which was Five years later. a non-thing, <laughs> I'm just such a deep horse nut. You know, I've done everything horses, you know, the breeding, the training, you know, the nutrition, the vetting. The trying to be a horse when you were a child. Yeah. <laughs> I just hands and knees yeah. and jump the piano bench. You probably eat a lot of carrots you know. and apples. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And with the nutrition route you said you took, was that... For well, horses? Just get, I got a master's degree in nutrition. That's all. Well, <laughs> well I was being rejected from yeah. vet school. But was it so, towards horses or humans? No, it was actually enzyme kinetics. Oh. But it, was, it just shifted my awareness of nutrition. So one thing that's kind of interesting to keep in mind is when you eat exactly the same thing every day, your body gets into a mode of like, oh, well, that's going to be available all the time. And it almost doesn't absorb maybe as well as it could. Like selenium, you know, 
if you, they get a little bit of selenium every day, they can actually be a little low in selenium horses because their body's just kind of sleepy about absorb. But if you kind of change it, like I, I tell clients to change, like use source for vitamins for six months and then switch to California Trace. Because mm-hmm. you know, it makes the body kind of wake up and go, oh, oh look, this is available, you know, and grab on. I think, I think when we just do exactly the same thing every day, nutritionally, it's just not good. And that's why green grass, when there's some green grass available and dry feed. Nature know, does and, that change for us here. Oh, uh, yeah, <laughs> this year in particular. Yeah. <laughs> So it just helped me shift my awareness of how the body responds to certain nutrients being available and not available and and what steroids do to carbohydrate metabolism and you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, well yeah, and if you're studying it per the human body, I mean the horse body's a body is a body. Right, exactly. Yeah. Biology is basic biology. It's, you know, it's herbivore versus carnivore or omnivore or it, you know, and another thing that's so interesting, people are so freaked out why a horse can have a quarter of a Prevacox tablet, right? A horse, 1200 pounds, and you give a whole tablet to a Labrador, but that's the carnivore metabolism versus herbivore, mm-hmm. you know, and their sensitivities, which I, you know, the other thing is I've messed around with, you know, Bach remedies and holistic medicine and homeopathy with horses and had great luck. And I'm like, whatever works, I don't care. I'm not attached to any single approach. I am very conservative about injecting joints. Are you? Okay. Yeah. Partly because Dr. Wee at UC Davis said, every time you put a needle in a joint is an opportunity for a cartilage biopsy, right? What if the na- needles like scraping some cartilage? Like maybe what you're putting in is really good, but what damage have you done? So I'm like, what can we do kind of from the outside, which is my whole feeling about using dressage to maintain soundness and health and all that. Yeah, muscle development. Yeah, yeah and, and weight. symmetry. Yeah. And using muscle to support tendons and ligament. The other thing, you know, I'm very into interval training because I like to give the muscles time to reoxygenate rest. I mean, there's a point, of, especially with the warm ones, I feel like when their muscles get fatigued or they aren't activated working correctly, they move ligamentously, right? So they're using suspension to move forward. And when you get them really tired and the muscles fatigue, they start to strain the tendons and ligaments. And then you have all these suspensory injuries. Like work them, work them correctly and make it happen, but give them a break. Yeah. And a sugar cube. <laughs> and is your program where you want it to be? I don't have a program. I just kind of go with the flow. You can't make any plans of life. Especially since <laughs> COVID, we all have seen this happen. Right. <laughs> I mean, I have goals. You know, and again, at my age, I'm, I'm more hoping to be able to start riding more. And, and now that I have a covered rain, I'm hoping people will hold me and cool. ride with me. Yeah. So I can be home more because I love to garden. You know, we grow a lot of our own food and there's a lot of things left in life I want to do, so. Yeah, do you have any hobbies outside of horses? The gardening probably is the <laughs> biggest one. I'd love to get back to drawing, you know? And I, I've got a book I drag around with me when I'm on the road, sometimes pull over and draw the tree trunk or whatever. Yeah. Life, we have no idea how short it might be, so shoot for happy, you know, be happy. Yeah. I mean, be responsible, 
You probably should get some kind of degree, but you know, be happy. Well, also happiness fluctuates. That's the hard oh, part yeah. about that is there right. are moments where one week you're like, on top of the world, and then all of a right. sudden, like a few things right. collapse. Right, you can't be daily self-indulgent. I'm not. I'm not doing that anymore. I'm not happy. I mean, you can't do that, right? But you make a strive for happiness on right. the daily. Overall, yeah. If if the PhD thing is becoming miserable for you, yeah, don't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and similar to how you applied five times and yeah. finally got in, I do feel like when things don't work out for us, even though in the moment it sucks, yeah. it wasn't meant to happen right then. Right. And right. again, you wouldn't have met your husband or been on the path right. you are now right. if you did get in that first time. Right. So well, who knows? You have no idea. Nobody I have does. No idea. <laughs> cool. Well, let's go into the question. So, what is something within the community that you'd like to see evolve or change? And then, how can you, if you're not already, help with that change? So, the number one thing, and Olivia, I were talking about this last night, is sometimes why do we do this to the horses? You know, we get our ego and our emotions so wrapped up in a stupid, lazy, grass-eating mammal that has no agenda to ruin our life. But we're kind of hard on them in a lot of ways. And it's an education thing. I mean, when you're young, you're ambitious, you're strong, you know, you're going to make that horse do it. But I think I deal with a lot of really burned out, messed up, mostly warm bloods that have been cranked and spanked on. And... I have no doubt that whoever the trainers were or the writers before really thought they were doing the right thing. So how do you change? You know, I'd like to think my approach is helping at least some you know, people I work with understand that they need breaks. The muscles need a chance to reoxygenate, relax, and the horse's brain. This is another thing. Evolutionarily, if you think about it, horses never get to that pumped up state of Piaf and Passage and Pirouette kind of energy unless the freaking cougar's gonna eat them. So when you bring up that energy, a lot of horses get spookier and more worried and more tense. So you have to teach them that they can come up to that place and then drop out of it and be safe. So they can start feeling confident there. If you keep cranking on them, that's the place where they start to shut down. So I would like people to think about that. And then I think it's true for reining, it's true for, you know, saddlebreds, Arabs. You know, you see these horses that minds are blown. It's not just dressage. No. But, you know, you still got to get the job done, right? Yeah. We, if there's but goals in mind. making it fair to the horse. Yeah. Know? Definitely. I like that. And I feel like you are doing that even just with watching you and Jordan yeah. today. It's my, it's my approach. Yeah. And I'm sure I make mistakes, but... I do the best I can, and, so, and that's one of my biggest concerns is, you know, people need to give the horses more breaks in the training and be realistic about what the horse can physically manage at that moment in time. And Charles DeConfi was wonderful, and he, he said, you know, basically that just because a horse is genetically bred and genetically gifted doesn't mean they're fit for passage. Right? You know, you still have to go through the training scale. The muscles have to be trained. You don't take a six-year-old kid that's a gymnast that's gifted and expect them to do level 10 gymnastics. You know, it takes five or six years to get there. Yeah. If you're lucky. Yeah. So. Yeah, and I think meeting the horse where they're at that day exactly. is exactly what you're saying. Exactly. Some horses 
had a bad night's sleep and then they right. come out and they're crazy or all of a sudden they have ulcers or, or they have a flat tire one day yeah. just like you know the rider might have a flat tire one day right they yeah. just they're just not really present yeah for that right and and here's the other thing is sometimes pretty good is good enough like stop when it's pretty good you don't have to push to perfection because usually that's the place where the horse fatigues and just can't do the job and then the rider gets frustrated and smacks them or yanks them or it's just so unproductive that's an art learning when pretty good is good enough and you're still fulfilling progression towards a goal yeah i feel like a lot of times when there's a goal or like you know with the sport horse world when yeah. there's like this i want to do the Grand Prix or I want right. to do this. If you're not there yet, it's hard to meet the horse where you're at because right. where they're at because you want to get to that goal. Right, right, exactly. So. And, and and that takes experience to know that you're hitting a little bit that wall where you're like, okay, well, I'm gonna have to give that up for right now because it's just not working for this horse. Yeah, or dressage isn't working for this horse. Upper right. level dressage isn't working. discipline, right. Yeah. So here's the other thing, you know, people talking about a horse being maxed out at third level or producing George. I have trained perfectly ordinary, utterly ungifted horses to Grand Prix. They're not international level, but they can be trained and you can enjoy the path and the horse can become better and actually braver and more happy in themselves, I think, if it's done well. And that's something Klimko was really good at, you know, and, and his daughter, Ingrid, very much. She kind of cross-trains horses till they're six and then decides what's their gift, what's their path. Of course, that takes experience, but be open to it, right? Like if you're really struggling with one piece of something with a horse or the progression you want to make or whatever, get some good advice and be open to it. That's not the job that horse can do. And it's usually more an emotional or mental thing, you know? I got the thoroughbred schooling Grand Prix. Did he want to do it? Absolutely not. I will never make a horse do that again. Did I smack on him and lose my temper? Absolutely. Am I proud? No. But I did do it, and I've been there. Well, it's good to at least have that that awareness to admit it. Yeah. Uh, so last thing, you get to ask me one question. So is there anything you want to ask me? What got you into this? The podcasting? Yeah. I enjoy listening to podcasts and I oh. also enjoy conversations with people and yeah. learning about people. And so one day I was actually on my way to a friend's barn listening to a podcast and I was like, huh, I know a lot of really random people in the yeah. horse world in all different disciplines. I become friends with most people in yeah. general. Yeah. I also was just kind of looking for something more to do. I do PEMF on horses. Okay. And so I was just kind of looking for something more and something right. different. Right. And I wanted to be a therapist. So I have my undergrad in psychology, okay. but didn't want to pay the money to go to school to get my master's or the time. I'm just right. not a school person. Right. And so this kind of fills that. I want to be outside. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, this kind of fills that. And yeah. so I just reach out to people. Luckily, I'm in an area where a lot of people clinic. Right. And a lot of my friends have people clinic from all over. Yeah. Cool. yeah. So I just kind of started recording people and it's That's been fun. fun. Yeah, yeah. It's really cool. Recorded awesome. History. Well, thank you for chatting with me. Thank you. Hello again, and thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode of Stable Connections, the podcast. This is your host, Shauna Burke. And if you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, 
Don't forget to tune in every Monday morning for a new episode. Follow us on Facebook and on Instagram. It always helps to leave a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or on Facebook. And if you or someone you know wants to sponsor an episode, please visit www.stableconnectionsthepodcast.com. See you next week.